3: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, a conversation with Georgia, Georgia Democratic U.S. Representative Lucy McBath. We'll talk about legislation from gun rights to voting rights. Plus, we've heard from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute about their legislative session priorities. Now we'll talk to Kyle Wingfield from the Georgia Public Policy Foundation. Also, we revisit those tips on how to sign up for Obamacare health insurance. The open enrollment deadline is January 15th. All those conversations coming up. But first this, a $2,000 public school teacher pay raise, a bonus for law enforcement and first responders, and more financial support for Georgia foster parents. Well, these are just a few of the priorities Governor Brian Kemp laid out in his State of the State address delivered this morning.
4: By keeping our state open for business, bringing record levels of jobs and investment, and and fighting to put hard work in Georgians first, we now have the opportunity to build a safer, stronger Georgia fruit for all who call the Peach State home.
3: Now, Kemp also used the annual speech to a joint session of the General Assembly to show his support for more parental involvement in public education. Governor Kemp vowed to support measures he feels will address
4: disruptive issues in Georgia's schools. That's why I'm looking forward to working with the members of the General Assembly this legislative session to protect our students from divisive ideologies like critical race theory that pits kids against each other. I also look forward to working with the House and the Senate to pass and sign a Parental Bill of Rights in our education system and other pieces of legislation that I strongly support to ensure fairness in school sports and address obscene materials online and in our school libraries.
3: Kemp is facing a challenge from within the Republican primary race for governor, which obviously includes U.S. Senator David Perdue, who's tried to outflank Kemp on several social issues. Kemp also said he wants to fully fund the state schools and expand the state's ability to prosecute gangs and gang members. All of the governor's plans will need the approval, of course, of state lawmakers. Meanwhile, the Democratic response from House Minority Leader James Beverly is also expected this afternoon. In other news, a new Atlanta Police Department precinct is officially opened in Buckhead. Mayor Andre Dickens says the outpost at the intersection of Peachtree and West Paces Ferry Roads will staff at least 12 officers by the summer. I lived in Buckhead for about 17 years, and my daughter currently goes to school in Buckhead. And just like I want my daughter's safety, I want your families to be safe. Uh, I want citizens in Buckhead and around the whole city of Atlanta to feel safe in their communities. And as I've said this a hundred times already, we will be one city with one bright future. APD officials say the precinct could eventually staff more than 12 officers to help with patrols. Proponents of creating the new city from the Buckhead neighborhood have often cited a rise in crime as a motive. And as you just heard from WABE's Emil Moffat on NPR, always good to hire reporters there, the Omicron variant of the coronavirus continues to disrupt the airline industry and hit Atlanta-based Delta Airlines hard. Now, it's reporting a $408 million loss for the final quarter of 2021, of course, dragged down by a COVID-19 surge that rocked the airline in December. And during that earnings call this morning, CEO Ed Bastian said 8,000 Delta employees have contracted COVID-19 Over the last four weeks, sick workers and winter storms have led to more than 2,200 canceled flights since December 24th. This is Closer Look.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF
3: You're tuned to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. In Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. We're just a few days into this year's legislative session and already have a clear picture of what some lawmakers' top priorities will be. We just heard from Governor Brian Kemp as he laid out his vision for the upcoming session in his State of the State Address.
4: It invests historic levels of resources in our students and educators, keeps politics out of the classroom, and ensures parents have the final say in their kids' education. It reduces the cost of health insurance for Georgia families, recruits 1,300 new nurses and doctors into communities where they're needed the most, and gives new mothers expanded access to medical care. It incentivizes more Georgians to enter a career in law enforcement, redoubles our efforts to dismantle violent gangs and combat human trafficking, and strengthens Georgians' constitutional rights to protect themselves and their families.
3: Kemp is looking for support on teacher pay raises, more money to build the state's health care workforce and expand access to firearms. He also promised a $1.6 billion in tax refunds to Georgians, which he says will come from a surplus in the state budget. And for some time now, Georgia Republicans have held the levers of power at the state capitol. But here's some questions. Can they come together in an election year when Governor Kemp is facing a GOP primary challenge from former U.S. Senator David Perdue? And what about the issues where they might need the support of Democrats? Well, those are questions I'm sure are on the mind of Kyle Wingfield these days. He's the president and CEO of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation and joins me now to talk about all this, including the group's priorities and how they might go about getting them done this session. Kyle, it's been some time. Thanks for It has been. I think last time... I think last time I spoke to you, we were actually probably doing some election night coverage or something like that.
0: It may have been, and um, I, I don't know if that was a job or two ago or, or what, but <laughs> it's great to be with you today.
3: Hey, um, just overall, your first reaction to Governor Kemp's the priorities he laid out in his state-of-state State address this morning?
0: Well, you know, he's been telegraphing some of these for a couple of days now at, at various events, and, and I really think you can you can get at a lot, one of the broadest themes of this legislative session, both in terms of what the governor is trying to do, what you'll see legislators trying to do, both Republicans and Democrats. And it has to do with this with this state surplus. You know, the someone pointed out to me today that, you know, the law in Georgia doesn't really even contemplate the idea that you'd have more money in surplus than the rainy day fund could hold. Mm-hmm. This is just not a situation we're used to seeing. Um, but you know, the, the competing priorities, obviously there's election year considerations, um, but there's a lot of skepticism that I hear that this surplus represents an ongoing um, situation. You know, that, mm-hmm. that this is money that George is gonna continue to see year after year. There's, there's this kind of feeling that it's a one-time deal or a one-off deal. And, and so a real hesitation with making long-term commitments with that money
3: are you willing to admit or say that how governor Kemp handled Georgia opening, some would say open too fast, but during the pandemic, how he handled uh, keeping business, being able for some businesses to stay open uh, during the pandemic that has led to this surplus. Is that a direct correlation you think?
0: Well, you look at the economies of the various States generally and the States that opened the soonest are, are performing the best. So, Georgia being one of the very first to reopen, you know, one of the last to close, one of the first to reopen, and one of the most reluctant to impose new restrictions along the way. So certainly I think that's been a big piece of it. Um, we've seen trillions of dollars in federal spending over the last two years, um, even as someone who doesn't like to see or talk about uh, government spending and the trillions of dollars, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of money can't be spent without some sort of effect, right? You're going to see it course through the economy and we see it showing up in inflation too, by the way, but but certainly that's boosted, both of those things have boosted revenues uh, over the last year plus.
3: What well, do you respond to someone who counters that with saying, but also um, Georgia's hospitals and healthcare systems like so many throughout the nation are still feeling the effects with so many hospitalizations and many of those hospitalizations being folks who are not vaccinated and going back to how governor Kemp did not have a a mask mandate and some other measures that folks felt like he could have put in statewide to help mitigate the spread of this virus.
0: Well, you know, I think a mask mandate is one thing, a a vaccine being available is another, Um, you know, I, I'm personally vaccinated. I, I think that it offered a lot of hope. I think that's, uh, as as you've seen in some of the states that didn't reopen as quickly, and and in states like Georgia, that was a huge boost uh, last year as as more people became willing to go out. We've seen two variants since then. Obviously, uh, it's it's, you know, I, I'm personally very hopeful that seeing Omicron being not as um, lethal or or as leading to as the great likelihood of hospitalization for people that, you know, maybe that's a sign that, that we're easing our way out of this.
3: You just said a moment ago, and in a sense, I'm paraphrasing, you are a fiscally conservative guy, in a sense. So when you hear that Governor Kemp's promise of a tax refund, which he says translates to about $250 for individual flyers, filers, excuse me, and $500 to those filing jointly, um, do you think maybe it might be
0: more prudent for the state to put that money in its rainy, rainy day fund? Well, right now it's over it has over four billion dollars in the rainy day fund. They would truly they would actually have to change the law. It's it's at its maximum legal amount right now. And, you know, that could be an option. But at the same time, being over four billion dollars sitting on the side in a rainy day fund um you know, there's a point at which you say, "Well, well, why is the government just continuing to add and add and add to this mm-hmm. fund?" So, um, you know, th- this gets to something I was saying earlier. Yeah, I what I would like to see the state of Georgia do, just generally speaking, is change the structure of its tax code, um, broaden the base, flatten and lower rates, such as the personal income tax rate. But those are long term structural changes and again if we believe this is one-time money or at least not money that's going to be sustained into the future you know i have to I have to be honest here and say mm-hmm. that a structural tax change is not really different from a structural spending change mm-hmm. in terms of new programs or expansion of programs so so the, the governor's kind of caught in a little bit again like i was saying earlier a, a, if not quite unprecedented because uh, i've always hesitate to use that word, um, certainly uncommon situation where there's literally more money, um, than, than you, than you know what to do with. And you don't know if it's going to be the same situation next year or the year after that. You all... so, so I think some sort of refund, you know, is, is, is probably the right thing to do where the governor the government says, this is, uh, you know, this is money that came in from citizens and it's more than we're planning to spend. So we're going to send it back to citizens.
3: You all over at the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, you all have laid out some plans in which you say, look, lawmakers could further cut the state income tax. Uh, how might some of those work? And, and give uh, our listeners, uh, dissect that for us. Give us one or two of your plans.
0: Yes. Yeah, so we we published a study late last year. um And basically, we asked an economic modeling firm to say, okay, what would it take for the state of Georgia, which right now has a progressive income tax with six brackets, Mm -hmm. but that top bracket starts at a fairly low level of income, you know, $7,000 of taxable income for an individual, $10,000 for a couple, you're paying the top income tax rate. Most states don't get you to the top rate that quickly. So what we'd like to see is flatten that, condense it to one bracket, and then lower it over time. We've seen North Carolina lower its top rate over time, very gradually in a way that's very sustainable. So this study looks at how you could do that, go to 5%, 4%, or 3%, and how you could, it provides kind of a menu of revenue offsets to to demonstrate that it can be done without slashing revenue.
3: And also, Kyle, we're talking about then certain programs and services would not suffer or would there be some cuts?
0: I mean, obviously, once you get into the political realm, you're going to say, do you want all these offsets or not? Mm -hmm. But what we asked the modelers to do was say, give us a complete offset so that we know what that looks like and then give us a menu of other options in case you don't want to go quite that far. And so that's what we have and the, and the general um, tool that we use or had them use to say, here's what you would do. Um, right now, our sales tax as a state applies only to goods. Mm-hmm. It does not apply to services. When it was created, that covered roughly 70% of the state's economy. Today, it covers roughly 30% of the state's economy. So you can broaden that base. So for instance, when you get your oil changed, you pay sales tax on the oil, but not the labor, the labor for doing the change. And so you could look at applying it to both and that provides the revenue to lower that income. Back. Here's a, the
3: M word that a lot of folks don't like, which is Medicaid when we talk about that, but we know Democrats are again, are calling for full Medicaid expansion. And let's let's just get this on out the way, Kyle, because is there a way and, and through your lens it, that Republicans would get on board with this, especially with those additional incentives offered to States to expand within the American rescue plan? Because I think one of the criticisms that has been that the, here in in Georgia, Republicans have not been able, well, this is what some folks are saying, have not been able to, with valid points, have a good reason for not wanting to expand Medicaid.
0: Well, I think in a lot of ways, the original objections to expansion are still there. Um, number one, we know that the federal government, which has only increased the amount of money it's spending lately... Um, at some point, it can't continue to take on more and more and more, and we know that the expansion population gets a higher match. So you have to ask yourself, does does Congress eventually lower that back to the traditional match? Mm-hmm. You know, in the long term, that seems like a likely thing that would uh, put the state on the hook for a lot more spending. Uh, number two, you know, uh, people talk about the the value of having an insurance card in your pocket uh, when it comes to Medicaid expansion. And certainly, uh, in a lot of ways, it's better to have one than not have one. But what we like to focus on is: Are you really getting access to the care you need? Um, the The number changes. But every if you year, don't right? have,
3: but if you don't have insurance,
0: the answer is you're not getting it anyway. So, well, but but what I was about to say is the number change. The percentage changes every year, but every year it's consistently lower. The percentage of doctors who will even accept Medicaid. Um, we, you're much more likely to find a doctor who will see you if you have private insurance. So what we would like to see and what we've proposed over the years and what we believe uh, was part and parcel of what Governor Kemp was trying to get through his uh, two healthcare waivers is to find a way to get more Georgians into the private kind of insurance that they need, which will give them that care, which doesn't leave providers seeing patients on a, on a basis where they lose money and 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 provides actual access rather than just uh, you know maybe what in some cases is more of a feel good measure.
3: Well, but what Brian Kemp in, proposed, which was that workforce that 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 mandate, and Kyle, you know that for some people that is just simply that they can't do that. But I want to go back to something else that you said in terms of primary care physicians who have issues because they're not getting paid. But wouldn't it make more sense? Some would argue, let's work on fixing the, the process within Medicaid to make sure folks are getting primary care physicians so they can keep their doors open, fix that process as opposed to having a process that bars some people from even having access, if that makes sense.
0: Well, I certainly think it would be more intellectually honest of the proponents of expansion if they would propose fixing it first. Um, you know, when when the reason that Medicaid isn't expanded or isn't accepted by a number of healthcare providers mm-hmm. is really two main reasons. The, the reimbursement rate is is low. Mm-hmm. And two, the administrative burden of working with Medicaid can be I uh, quite high. I have heard that, I have heard that. But I don't see, <laughs> I don't hear those proponents clamoring to fix those problems first. They want to expand the population first. And what I think about, and something that often gets overlooked here, the people who are on Medicaid in Georgia today are the state's most vulnerable residents. Um, if, and they already have a tr- more trouble finding a doctor who will see them. So what's going to happen when we add half a million, 700,000 more people onto those roles competing with those most vulnerable Georgians for the ability to see a doctor? I think, again, I would have a lot more interest in talking about expansion if we were going to fix the problem first. And I just frankly have not heard people talking.
3: Right, And perhaps that is the problem then on both sides, getting people to come together to fix the problem. Uh, As we wrap up, what is the one, what is the major priority that you hope with your organization that you hope lawmakers get done this year?
0: Well, we just wrapped up our 30th anniversary year. And the number one issue for us, dating all the way back to 1991, and it continues today, is empowering families to send their children or get their children the right kind of education that fits them the best. So we are big proponents of school choice measures. Georgia has embraced some of those, uh, but what we would like to see is some sort of new mechanism. Some people call it an education scholarship account that allows the dollars to follow the child to the educational setting that is best for them
3: and that will be based on need
0: well uh, we, we believe every child deserves the ability to do that uh if you're going to start limiting it then sure i mean you can well you the, can hope the hope scholarship
3: the hope scholarship limits limits has some limits to it.
0: it no it did at the first they got rid of those after a couple of years that was That's right. That was the original idea. But you, there's no income cap on the Hope Scholarship these days. And we would say, why do you treat K-12 education any different than you treat higher ed? Let students go to the place that fits their abilities, their ambitions, their aspirations the best. Um, and if we're going to pay for their education, let it follow them there. It's if, like- I were going to put it, if I were going to put a limit, I would say that you had to be in, in public school. I, I'm, I'm not saying let's start paying for people who are already out of the public school system. But beyond that, I'd like it to be as universal as we can get it.
3: Like universal health care, Kyle?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're already doing it in education. So once again, let's let's make it work better for people. uh, And then I think we'll have something better.
3: Kyle Wingfield is president and CEO of the Georgia Public Policy Foundation. We've been discussing the outlook for the 2020 legislative session, which got underway this week. Kyle, we'll bring you back. Good conversation as always. Good to see you.
0: Appreciate you. Thank you so much.
3: And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Recently, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp said he pushed to expand access to guns in the state. And he said this by ending the need for a permit to carry in public.
4: Building a safer, stronger Georgia starts with hard-working Georgians having the ability to protect themselves and their families. In the face of rising violent crime across across the country, law-abiding citizens should have their constitutional rights protected, not undermined. I believe the United States Constitution grants the citizens of our state the right to carry a firearm without state government approval.
3: Now, this move drew quick condemnation from gun control advocacy organizations and Democrats, including Georgia Representative Lucy McBath. From the 6th Congressional District that covers the northern Atlanta suburbs, Representative McBath has been a longtime advocate for what she sees as stronger gun safety protections and gun violence prevention. And just yesterday, she spoke on the House floor regarding
1: so many of these proposed permitless carry laws. Republican officials across the country are trying to make it easier for anyone to wield guns around our children and our families. Back in my home state of Georgia, our governor is trying to implement permitless carry, irresponsible legislation that is dangerous for our law enforcement, dangerous for our families, and dangerous for the people that we love and cherish. We cannot allow these destructive efforts to continue and we must reaffirm our dedication to passing meaningful legislation that truly saves American lives. And this was the main
3: focus of our conversation when we spoke earlier today. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining Closer Look. We really appreciate it. Happy New Year. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Let's start with that address yesterday on the House floor because you cited within the last year, we saw a sharp increase in gun sales and you said as well as a 30 percent rise in the murder rate. And you added this, quote, more guns in the hands of those who should not have them results in the death of those who should still be alive and with us today. So my question is, as we see these permitless measures trying to get passed in states like Georgia, it's concerning to you that we will possibly see the nation's murder rate increase even more.
1: Yes. And as you know, as I stated, and as you reiterated, Rose, you know, this past year has seen an explosion in gun sales and with it, you know, it's a 30% rise in the murder rate at a time, you know, when the data becomes increasingly clear that more guns in the hands of those who should not have them just results in more deaths of those who should still be alive today. And our Republican officials are just simply trying to make it easier for anyone to wield guns around our children or our families. And we just need to pass legislation that will keep our families safer, legislation like universal background checks, red flag laws, bills that the majority of the American people already support.
3: Mm -hmm. I want to ask you this, Representative McBath. Do you think if Governor Kemp was not seeking re-election, and this obviously wasn't a very big election year in general – that these types of measures would even be introduced and we'd be having this conversation.
1: Well, you know, I can't speak to anyone else's motivations, but, you know, it's just definitely that just so extremely disappointing that here we are again, you know, time and time again, you know, we go through this, Mm -hmm. you know, the NRA gun lobby and Republicans push these dangerous gun laws that continue to put our families at risk. So with this bill, anyone, without any training, could carry loaded weapons around our children, our families, and throughout our communities and law enforcement. They've even stood up and, you know, they've come out against these bills. Mm -hmm. They're even saying that it makes their work more dangerous and that it makes the community more dangerous.
3: What conversations, if you've had so far with Democrats here in Georgia, state lawmakers, who have also expressed opposition to this bill? What have you heard from them?
1: Just the same things that I'm saying right now. Most of the people in Georgia, most of the people around the nation agree that there have to be some common sense, reasonable solutions in our existing gun laws. Now, I've talked to many, many people across the country that are law abiding gun owners. They as well express the same sentiments that they too are concerned about the direction and the culture that we're going in. You know, less than a year after a shooting spree left eight Georgians dead in three spas across metropolitan Atlanta, state officials are trying to make it easier for anybody to build guns around our families and our children. You know, my own son was murdered in a senseless act of gun violence, and we just cannot continue to let those who know nothing of gun safety put the lives of our children on the line. Irresponsible laws are dangerous for law enforcement. They have spoken out about them, dangerous for our families, and they have no place in our state. We've got to do better in Georgia.
3: When we talk about common sense gun laws, and we hear that phrasing a lot, if there's something that is missing in legislation, whether it's a federal or state level, when we talk about common sense gun laws, what would you like to see added?
1: Well, I mean, there's no one piece of legislation that will cure the extremist gun culture that we're living in. There absolutely is not. But, you know, anything that we can do to help curb the gun violence in America is what we need to be doing. You know, legislation like red flag law that Mm -hmm. I introduced and has been marked up by the Judiciary Committee and we will be voting for that. On the House floor, you know, these are tools that give loved ones and law enforcement the ability to ensure that those who pose a threat to themselves or others do not have access to firearms. You know, also we've background checks for all gun sales, child access prevention legislation. The numbers of children that have had access to unsecured arms and guns in their homes has exponentially gone up under COVID people who have access to guns that are you know in crisis from either committing harm to themselves or others those numbers have gone up exponentially under covid so there's no one piece of legislation but many pieces of legislation to stem the different and vast facets of the extremist gun culture that we're living
3: in. I want to turn now to another critical piece of legislation that involves voting rights. As you know, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris were in Atlanta this week. And of course, calling for changes to U.S. Senate rules in order to pass some voting rights legislation. Now, listen, we both know Congress y'all have had some issues in trying to work together and come together. But a number of Democratic activist groups in the state have actually called out the White House and Democrats for not doing enough to really push these bills. We should be fair. We know that there's some issues. How do you feel you can bring these two groups together, advocates who are saying they're not doing enough, and then the White House who's saying, look, we're trying to do what we can in order to get these voting rights legislation passed?
1: Well, you know rose i have to honestly say i understand everyone's frustration and as the president very candidly and openly said before us is that you know he is frustrated everyone's frustrated but i think the president is frustrated with the lack of progress on these very very critical issues that we have and so you know i believe all options should be on the table you know options that our activists might recommend options that the president and the vice president are espousing action that, you know, in Congress, we are here espousing that happens because it's all vitally necessary. It is all critical. And that's why it's so important that, you know, we pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and also the Freedom to Vote Act because, you know, we've got to lead on these issues and protect the right to vote for every single American. There is so much at stake right now. And I have to tell you, You know, I remember as a small child, Mm -hmm. you know, I was the child that was in the stroller at the March on Washington. I was all but three years old. Mm. And, you know, I walked with my parents side by side as they were holding my hand as we were marching, you know, for equality and calling for justice. So in Georgia and throughout the southeast and truly all across America, you know, we were witnessing a coordinated assault on voter access and election integrity. And Americans deserve to cast their ballots without fear of interference or obstruction. And so I'm so proud, you know, to have joined the president and vice president as you know, we stand on the front lines, every one of us, fighting to pass these really, really critical pieces of legislation. Uh, and you know, we we can't waver. We cannot waver. How
3: crucial is it to get these measures passed now, especially with the uncertainty of the November elections?
1: Everything weighs upon the decisions that are made about voting rights now. Anything that we would want to be able to establish politically, economically. I mean, the thriving of the nation depends on these moments right now. So that people and future generations will have the ability to exercise their most sacred vote. And that critical moment, we are on that precipice right now. Everything that those that fought for, died for, bled for, is on the line right now.
3: And speaking of those elections, as you know, here in Georgia, Republican state lawmakers redrew the sixth district, your district. Making it more favorable for their own party, as you know, that being a catalyst for you now challenging fellow Democrat Carolyn Bordeaux for her seat in the 7th congressional district. There was some criticism. I don't know if I've heard you respond to that, but I would like to give you an opportunity to respond to some folks that saying, well, that's not fair that you're now challenging a fellow Democrat just because your district was redrawn.
1: Well, you know rose unfortunately you know i've always been the top target of the republican party here in georgia because of the legislative successes that we've had on gun safety and veterans and health care and just getting many other pieces of legislation signed into law by both presidents president trump and president biden and you know my district was the district that had to change the least of any of the districts in the entire country but the republicans moved it to 26 points to Trump. It is now a Trump 15th district. I just have to say that after my son died, I made a promise to him and I made a promise to all of the gun violence survivors and victims and families that I have worked with over the years. I promised I would do everything in my power to keep them safe, to keep them healthy so that no one will ever have to suffer the way that I have suffered. And to keep that promise to my son and to my community, I must run in the newly created Democratic District because lives are depending on it. Have you had a
3: conversation with Carolyn Bordeaux at all about this?
1: Um, We've spoken in passing, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. not had a full length conversation.
3: As we're going to wrap up, earlier this month, voting rights groups did file a lawsuit in federal court arguing that those redrawn districts deny representation to black communities now, and they want them redrawn. We don't know what the outcome could be, but if there is an outcome that changes any of that, what does that mean for you
1: and your race? Well, Rose, you know, I support all remedies at the ballot box and also in the courtroom, you know, so I support whatever efforts come From the court proceedings, I will abide by. And finally,
3: Representative McBath, we're just a few days away from another Martin Luther King Jr. federal holiday. I often ask people around this time to reflect, not so much on Dr. King's legacy, but where we are now after his death, not just for the rights of black Americans, but for all Americans as it relates to what he was trying to do with the civil rights movement
1: I really hope that the younger generations in the country really have um, embraced Dr. King's legacy. And by embracing it, I mean, not just learning about it in, in, in school and reading about all the successes and everything that he did to help build this movement, but that they have truly embraced it. Embraced it as their own and understanding that as Coretta Scott King says, is that each generation must continue to fight and stand and defend you know, all of the successes and all of the work that has been done prior to their coming into their own. It is extremely vital. It's extremely necessary. And that is how we preserve democracy going forward for future generations, for communities long after we're gone it is a sense of self-preservation for
3: america you have often said always referencing your son jordan your most important title will forever be jordan's mom how does that still
1: continue to make you do what you do you know rose at the core everyone who knows me all of my staff everyone who works with me even my colleagues Identify me as a mom, the mom in Congress. That's what they call me because I know why I am the person that I am. I know what God has called me to do and who he has called me to be. And always being Jordan's mother is embraced in my vision for my community, what I want to be able to contribute to my community. You know, at the core, I'm a mother. How do I keep my family safe? My community. How do I keep them healthy? My community. How do I make sure that all the children that I am now responsible for are educated? My community. How do I make sure that I leave for them a legacy that is far better than, you know, the life that they're living now. What is that? That, That's the vision that I try to build each and every single day because that's exactly what I would be doing for Jordan. So all I'm doing is taking everything that I want, everything that I want to create in an environment of success and a quality of life and living that I would be doing for my son, All I'm doing is transferring that to the people that I live among every day, the people that I'm so blessed to represent, but also people that may never, ever know me or know who I am. That is Jordan's legacy that I want to leave for the United States of America.
3: Lucy McBath, Democrat representing Georgia's 6th Congressional District. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Congresswoman. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Have a great day. You too.
3: And we should note after our conversation, Representative McBath, as a member of the United States House of Representatives, did pass the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act. Of course, that was along party lines. Now heads to the Senate for debate. We're back in a moment. Georgia. You have two days left to sign up for Obamacare Health Insurance for 2022. People who sign up by their deadline will have coverage that starts February 1st. We know that as of last month, more than 650,000 Georgians had logged onto the enrollment website, healthcare.gov, and selected their plans. Lakeisha Samuels is one such a navigator for the Georgia Primary Care Association. And when we spoke earlier in the week, she said it's not uncommon for a late surge as this deadline nears.
2: Oh, gosh, definitely. There is um, a total rush. We had our initial um, push um, uh, last month. Um, of course, we had um, in order to get coverage by that would start by January 1st, you had to have uh, enrolled by uh, December 15th. And so um, although open enrollment began on November 1st, you have the you know you know, we're we were pushing, pushing, pushing. And you have the No one really, you know, you have a few people that were um, enrolling and and, and starting their applications. But as the December 15th deadline drew nearer in order for them to be able to have coverage that started January 1st, you had like the mad dash right Mm -hmm. before the December 15th deadline came. The last two or three days before December 15th, we had droves of people. The the lines were going crazy. Everybody trying to get those final um, questions answered, those applications um, completed and, and just trying to get everything completed by the 15th in order to have that coverage to start january 1st so we expect to see um the same it's already began um i can tell you um last week i had tons of just uh, calls and questions everybody trying to meet um definitely beat this final deadline
3: and so that means i want to be very clear about this folks it means january 15th not at January 15th, you can log on. It's going to be done at January 15th, or they have till January 15th
2: at 11.59 p.m. That's exactly right. In 11.59, you have to have enrolled in a health care plan by January 15th, 11.59 in order um, for you to have coverage for this open enrollment period. Um, and that coverage will be effective um, February 1st. And for our listeners
3: not familiar with healthcare.gov, who's responsible for maintaining the site?
2: Well, the CMS is um, responsible for, it's, it's uh, the federal government, the okay. CMS is responsible um, for the state of Georgia. We are, that our uh, marketplace is a FM, FFM, a federally uh, facilitated marketplace.
3: And before we talk more about the site and the plans, how long have you been a navigator, Lakeisha?
2: Actually, I'm, um, I'm a fairly new navigator. I'm rolling around to um, coming up on a year that mm-hmm. I've actually been an active uh, a federally certified navigator.
3: I want to talk about language. Uh, when people head to the website, is it also available in other languages? And if so, what are those languages?
2: Oh, um, for the healthcare.gov, mm-hmm. um, the website, oh, the the land, the the, the site as well as the um, the 1-800 number, they have oh gosh, it's 230 or 240 plus languages that's available in. So really, um, yes, it is. Right. So um,
3: well, that's good to know for a lot of people, I'm sure. Yes. Okay, so let's get to it, and we want to remind folks that LaKeisha is here. She's just going over some basic knowledge and insight, so she's going to encourage you all to make sure you head to the website and yes. don't email me and ask me about you know your special circumstances because LaKeisha will not be able to answer them. But let's just go over some basics. Um, okay, so one listening says, okay, I'm headed to, I'm going to sign up for Obamacare health insurance. I have no idea where to start. Obviously, first you tell them to head to the website. Through your lens, is it pretty easy to to navigate from there?
2: It is. Um, You want to start with uh, healthcare, of course, healthcare.gov. And the first step is to be able to set up an account. So you have to set up an account through healthcare.gov and it's fairly easy to navigate. It is very user-friendly, the website itself. Um, but once you establish that account, you are able to use um, your username and your password, and you're able to go in and you have access so you can start and you know wherever you start and finish. So if you feel like you're going to start the application or you need to go back and finish, you have that capability. But it is very user friendly at any point in time that you go into the website and you feel that you have questions or you just quite don't, you don't quite understand or you're lost, then that's where someone, a navigator or someone like myself would come into play.
3: Let me ask you this. What information do you want folks to know in terms of documentation or information they need ahead of time before they even head to the website?
2: yeah. So before you be go, go to the website, you definitely want to make sure that you have, um, certain documents with you, things in regards to your household, you want to have income, um, documentation, things that, uh, relate to, uh, tax information, um, what your month, your, your household income is, um, things of that nature you want to have available. And it just, it's just going to make some of the, um, as you input those things, it's going to make it a lot easy, easy easier to, um, if you have those things accessible as you're entering your application
3: as a navigator what are some of the typical questions or or challenges you find that people tend to ask about or inquire about with with you
2: with me i think initially um during this open enrollment season what we saw were a lot of consumers that felt they were unaware of the new um of the new changes that have taken place with this uh, season with the Biden Harris administration and the um, American rescue plan. Of course, there were, there has been a a total revamp of um, the marketplace and the, um, in healthcare.gov in itself. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the consumers were familiar with the past. um, And so they may have applied in the past and felt, oh, the premiums were too high, or they had, you know, they just weren't, pleased with it. And so that was a lot to be able to provide a lot of outreach and education and let them know that, you know, encourage them to it was worthwhile to give it a second look and, and try again. Um, and so that was um, a lot of the, what I've got, just questions that, you know, is it the same? What's the, the price of your premiums or is it too expensive? And so I, just encouraging them to give it a second look and let them know above all the different changes, the, the premiums and the, this is, it's more affordable. And so I think that was the biggest thing. Um, This go around with COVID, a lot more Mm -hmm. consumers who have lost their jobs or in transition. Um, I had questions in regards to that. Well, I may have maybe taking a lesser paying job right now, but I'm currently looking for something now. So if I take this, you know, this lower premium, how will that affect me later once I am back in my career field or Mm -hmm. I have a a job that's, you know, paying me more money? How is that going to affect me when it comes time to reconcile my taxes, things of that nature?
3: I also understand there's something that folks can buy called catastrophic plans. Take that further for our listeners.
2: Yes. Um, if you're, um, it's not, everyone is uh, eligible for a catastrophic plan, but if you're under uh, 30 years of age and the catastrophic plan is for those that, um, it provides coverage in in pretty much what it says in a catastrophe, Mm -hmm. it doesn't provide any type of, um, coverage as far as like what you would need for preventive care and then your essential health care benefits but worst case events if you sure. were hospitalized in an emergency situation a disaster and an accident a, a, a tragedy or so you know something tragic uh, took place in that type of um, coverage would be something that is provided
3: is that because there's this general Assumption that folks in that age group uh, may not need as much more health care general coverage like us old folks like me.
2: Well, most of, the <laughs> well, most of them, because it is um, eligible for those primarily under 30 years of age, they um, typically, a lot of those younger folk, they are eligible you know you're eligible to stay on your your parents health plan until you're 26 years of age um also you have an option if you're in school you can can be on your uh, student um uh health plan at, at college um as well and so and then you know some of them as well although we encourage them because at any age you can come into you know you may have some health issues or something so but um we do try to I, it's just an option that they mm-hmm. have available you know should they have a situation where you live in you reside in a state that is that, that doesn't expand medicaid and you have um or you they may be of age where they're not on their parents um insurance or they and they can't afford um insurance on their employer their employer doesn't offer insurance sure. and so that is an option for a young person that falls into that category.
3: And Lakeisha, lots of folks can qualify for financial help to pay for Obamacare insurance. And is that that pretty easy for them to figure out as they're navigating through the website here?
2: Yes, it does. There are so many um, new credits, the premium, advanced premium um, uh, tax child credits. There are so many new credits that are available now through um, the marketplace. And so once again, that's why we've been, been as we go out and encourage everybody to give it a second look, we let them know about all these new tax credits and the lower cost. And so um, so many more people are qualifying for these than ever before. So that is definitely a plus. And so it doesn't hurt to give it a second look to submit um, an application and to see where you fall and see if you qualify for some of these credits.
3: Gotcha. Uh, as we begin to wrap up, LaKeisha, what are some of the common things people tend to get confused about that you all often have to clear up?
2: Some people think that we have I have a lot of consumers that think that we have some levity or we are able to adjust the premiums. Um they think that we I I, I run into a lot They're of They're trying to they negotiate think, with you. trying to negotiate. They think Hey, can't blame them. <laughs> do you have a plan that, you know, I can get, I need something around $80 a month. I do get a lot of consumers that think that we have some ability to um, set those uh, premiums and we do not. It is it's based on your income and some other um, things. And so it's a case by case situation, a scenario. So I do get that. And we just, I, we have to do a lot of education on just the terms as far as like deductible mm-hmm. and Coinsurance insurance and those uh, insur- insurance terms and being able to explain to them. Some people think that they get um, a plan, they get uh, an, an eligibility notice and show, and as they go through and they look, select the plan, they look at it and they feel, okay, well, I don't have to pay, they have a zero month premium, but they don't understand why they have to pay anything out as far as like a deduct, an annual mm-hmm. deduct. They don't understand those things. And so that's where we have to go in and do some more education.
3: And does this also include? I have a listener sent an email. Vision and dental is all that wrapped up or is that separate?
2: Well, vision and dental for um, well, each health, um, the, the marketplace plans cover 10 essential health benefits. Mm-hmm. However, for adults, vision and dental is not mandatory. So there are some health plans in the marketplace that do cover those things, but that is not a mandatory um, thing, not for adults. For children, it is. Dental and vision is a a part of the essential health benefits for children. However, for adults, it's not. So those things, dental and vision will have to be purchased as a standalone plan.
3: And finally, Lakeisha, if you could, if you could take this magic wand and wave it and <laughs> maybe change something within a process. It's just through your, your lens or personal opinion, what would it be?
2: Um I think that um hmm, that's a It's a good question, question, isn't it?
3: You can that's get back to very, me on it if
2: you want. <laughs> that's a very good question. I think that I would if I could just change anything i would just make it to where the it was just affordable for everyone like it was just the healthcare across the board was just it just fit into everyone's budget and no Boy, that is have, a safe I, answer Lakeisha. <laughs> And no one would have to sacrifice whatever the whatever application when they submitted and whatever premiums came back that it fit into it was affordable for everyone, but then there would have to be no sacrifices made.
3: Gotcha. Georgians have just a few more days to pick plans for twenty twenty-two, signing up by January fifteenth in order to have coverage by February first. Lakeisha Samuels, Healthcare Navigator, Georgia Primary Care Association, helping folks sign up for Affordable Care Act health insurance. LaKeisha, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Good information. We'll have links um, on our website to your website. Thank you so much. Don't forget January 15th is the last day. And that's it for this edition of closer look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead, Janine Eder, LaShawn Hudson and Daniel Razell are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other It's real easy. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR, where we're amplifying voices. I'm Rose Scott.